Welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Ella Whelan. I work with the Academy of Ideas. Uh, I'm a journalist, an author, and I co-convened the 2019 Back of Ideas Festival. And delighted tonight to be chairing this very, even though news moves quick these days, very necessary discussion, can we cancel, cancel culture? Um, one that we've been mulling around, mulling over in the office for quite some time, um, because it seems to take different iterations every every week and every different news story this debate seems to shift but i suppose the most important thing is that from for my mind anyway cancel culture might be a new phrase a new term um, but it's definitely not a new thing the uh kind of weaponization of censorship attacks on freedom of speech have been an, uh, around for a very long time i mean they were banning songs like robin thick's blurred lines when i was at university and Julie Bindle and Jermaine Greer being banned for being, for being so-called TERFs eight years ago. So this, you know, the, the ideas behind cancel culture is not necessarily anything new, but the phenomenon itself is, and even the fact that it's now kind of got a term, cancel culture, is interesting. Uh, and it's interesting because, as with most debates around freedom of speech, there are a certain number of people who say that it doesn't exist, that there isn't a problem with cancel culture, that actually this is the whole pushback against cancel culture is merely, as some commentators have claimed, people in positions of power who feel like they who are sweating under the heat of criticism for the first time, that this is just people making their voices heard by uh, using social media to put pressure on people by getting people out of positions of public office. And that really the whole panic about cancel culture is, as someone put it, a kind of right wing panic. Is that true? This is what we're here tonight to look at. And actually, more importantly, uh, what do you do about the fact that more and more people seem to be feeling like they can't speak out about certain things, whether it be political issues, moral issues, cultural issues, and how do we, if not cancel council culture, how do we even talk about it? Because for some, the whole issue of discussing this, of debate in itself, is tantamount to uh, violence or threats against equality. So let's just jump into this quite frenetic and tense um, world of cancel culture and try and figure out what we can do to argue for freedom of speech and maybe look at some of the historical background to this because as someone pointed out to me you know cancel culture is today what naming and shaming was used by political uh, activists in years gone by so uh, luckily it's not going to be me looking at this solely. I've got a fantastic panel at this point, just before I introduce them, I should say that we are recording this uh, event for the Academy of Ideas and it's going to be on our YouTube and our SoundCloud. Um, but while this is a free event and we have been delighted to have all of our online events throughout the lockdown and this strange sort of semi-lockdown period that we're living through free, uh, they're not free to put on and we've been working throughout these last few weird months and we would really appreciate it if you were if you're able to if you think about giving us a donation uh, if you head to the uh, website one of my colleagues has put the link in there www.academyofideas.org.uk forward slash donate there's a link where you can give us anything from the price of a, of a London pint or a cinema ticket or if you actually want to become more involved in us uh, signing up as an associate with a standing order each month gives you access to certain behind the scenes things, especially in relation to our festival and other larger events. 
uh, but it means that you can contribute to the work that we do uh, online and hopefully, fingers crossed soon, offline or in the real world, as they say, um, by becoming a, a monthly member. So please, if you can, think about heading to that, uh, to our website and giving us something. So that aside, uh, I now think I should introduce our very illustrious panel who have all in their own way had some kind of uh, experience with cancel culture, some of them personally, um, and some of them uh, from a distance. Uh, and I'm going to introduce them and then we'll get kicked off with a kind of in conversation between myself and them before we open up to all of you guys. So uh, first off, we have Nick Buckley, MBE. Uh, Nick is the founder and CEO of Mancunian Way Charity, uh, a social commentator and activist. And he was the founder and CEO of Mancunian Way and that charity and then was, as he'll explain, cancelled and has been reinstated. So he's got a particularly um, interesting and close to the bone view of, of cancel culture, let's say. So welcome to Nick. Uh, next up, we have Alex Dean. Alex is a partner at a large city consultancy, a regular political commentator in the media, and he's the founding director of Big Brother Watch. Um, and he's the author and editor most recently of Big Brother Watch, The State of Civil Liberties in Modern Britain. So thinking about this issue for, for a long time, Alex, that's welcome to him. Uh, we've got Claire Fox, who is the director of the Academy of Ideas and author of I Still Find That Offensive, which is the second version of her book, I Find That Offensive. Um, Claire has been many things, uh, most recently a, a member of the Brexit party, but has been a campaigner for free speech and a writer on free speech. And, and a critic of cancel culture in all its previous iterations for many years with her work at the Academy of Ideas and uh, in the media. So welcome to Claire. Next, we have Helen Pluckrose, who's a political and cultural writer and editor of ARIO magazine, which covers a lot of uh, these kinds of issues around liberty and freedom and freedom of speech. Um, she's the co-author with James Lindsay of Cynical Theories, How Universities Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why This Harms Everybody, which is out in September. Uh, and if you've been following the work that Helen does, she's got a very in-depth knowledge of how this is affecting academia and what's going on in universities and how this kind of actually in many ways cancel culture is something that has, I mentioned universities in the introduction, um, been, been born out of a kind of uh, culture that's been hostile to open debate in universities for quite some time in relation to academic freedom. So welcome to Helen. And last but not least, we have Calvin Robinson, who's the school leader and sometime political candidate, a frequent face on media outlets covering education and identity politics. Uh, and he had a very fiery uh, Good Morning Britain interview about um, teaching black history and its place in the curriculum. So he's had a, a personal experience of um, dealing with calls to be silent when really you should be speaking out and he's currently championing the defund the BBC campaign. So welcome to all of our speakers. Um, as we are a large audience um, tonight, I, I'm going to try and get out to you guys as soon as possible. We're just going to introduce uh, Academy of Ideas event stars, have rounds of questions. So I'm going to just kick off uh, not by having introductory speeches from each of our panelists, but by um, just kind of posing a question to them. We'll have a bit of a conversation and then we'll uh, head out to you guys. So Really, I wanted to start um, with you, Nick, because you've had that particular experience um, and those people who have been following you will know about it, but maybe say something, something shortish about it. But I also wanted to ask you, you know, what effect do you think that it has for you and what effect does it have on other people, this cancel culture? Is it, is it real? Um, obviously, it's real in the fact that it actually happened to you, but 
what how would you argue people who say this is just a kind of hyped up um fuss among some commentators who don't like uh, being told that what they're saying is wrong yeah a quick couple of minutes on, on what happened to me um i run a, a founder and i run a charity in manchester in the beginning of june when the black lives matter thing all started I did a little bit of research, found out who they were, what they wanted. I have a blog on my personal blog, my personal site, um, telling people what Black Lives Matter were about. Um, some people took that um, to heart and took offence. Obviously, I was called a racist, I was called a Nazi. The best quote I got was I was called a compassionate Nazi. Um, and then somebody set up a petition to have me sacked. It got about 400 signatures. There was other complaints coming in as well from these people via the email and the board of the charity panicked and they sacked me. Um, I'm not the sort of person to take that lying down. So I started the campaign to get my charity back. Um, I set up a, well, somebody else set up a, a petition that got 19,000 signatures. Through the free speech union, we got a solicitor's firm involved, uh, Keystone Law. Uh, Jeffrey Davis was fantastic. He looked at all the information, my contract, and deemed this was a breach of contract, pure and simple. The board resigned, I approved the new board, and they reinstated me. So that all happened over a six-week period. Um, stressful, disheartening. Um, I was quite surprised, really, the first couple of weeks, nobody came to my support. Everybody was scared stiff. I got phone calls and emails telling people, telling me, that they support me, but nobody wanted to go online and say it. Um, but I've sort of draw a line under it now. Um, we are where we are. I've been reinstated, I'm back where I belong, and I'm still carrying on the good work that I've been doing for 20 years. And I mean, do you think, Nick, do you think that the, uh, you know, it's one thing it happening to you yourself, um, but do you think that people, you mentioned that people didn't exactly rush to your defence. Do you think that the effect of, so I'm just going to use cancel culture and we can yep. talk about whether or not it's a, it's a phrase that can be questioned, but this whole thing, cancel culture, attacks on freedom of speech, is it making people afraid to speak out? I mean, the general public, you know, people who aren't oh. spending their whole lives on Twitter. Absolutely. Let's look at it a different way. If you've just seen someone stabbed, would you walk up to the person, the offender, and go, excuse me, you shouldn't be stabbing people. You wouldn't do that because you're going to get stabbed. And it's that feeling that we've all got that I could be next. I could be next. I mean, cancel culture has been down forever. You know, a thousand years ago, cancel culture meant you were executed because you disagreed with whoever or you, or you had the wrong religion. So therefore you were cancelled, but terminally and we executed you. The difference now is so it's social media. Let's be completely honest. It's social media. So people now, from behind the keyboard, um, most of the time, um, you don't even know their identity. They're in echo chambers, they feel they're fighting for something really, you know, really important. And that person, and the reason why people don't believe that cancel culture exists is because in their mind, it doesn't exist. How can, how can, it, how can it be wrong to get rid of somebody who's a racist or a Nazi? That's not cancel culture. That, that's, that's a decent thing to do. So that's why they don't agree with this thing because they really don't believe it exists. But my point is, this is a really dangerous game we're playing. We've got everybody using cancel culture to try to cancel someone from the other side. And it's a bit like chess. We're knocking each other's pieces over, going back and forth. And it's, going, it's eventually going to potentially destroy us all. 
Um, there is no winners in this. There's no winners in identity politics. There's no winners in this cancel culture because all we're going to have at the end is one person left who was the most righteous in the world because people who were fighting for cancel culture a year ago are being cancelled themselves now because it's crossed the line. They're not on the right side of the line anymore now. And it's just, it is a positive feedback loop where it's just getting more and more and more crazy. Okay, thanks, Nick. Um, Helen, I wanted to come to you next and just, I mean, I, I mentioned that it's come, that, you know, there's a theory that it's come out of universities and uh, people talk about, you know, crazy SJWs and all those uh, stereotypes that get flung around rather lazily. Um, but how, how is it, do you think, that a, such a small minority position, you know, a handful of people, sure thousands, but in the grand scheme of things, a handful of people on Twitter, um, can be the sort of moral arbiters of what's right and wrong, what you can and can't say? Where has this come from? Has it just dropped out of the sky or is there kind of deeper, a deeper basis to it? Yeah, well, I think, obviously, when we've got um, sort of cultural phenomenon like social media and, um, and sort of wider cultural um, things going on, it isn't all to do with the scholarship. But if we're looking at what the scholarship is saying, we can see the ideas that are underlying what we hear now. We've got a very particular conception of knowledge, power and language. And this comes from an evolved um, kind of theory which has got um, postmodern roots and which has then evolved over successive generations and memified. So the first postmodernists, when they were telling us that everything is a construct of language and that we um, construct knowledge by um, favouring dominant discourses and this is very dangerous and oppressive, this wasn't very understandable but as it evolved over the around 1990 and then been getting increasingly simple ever since, we, it, it's become memeified, it's become quite um, seductive, easy and simple for online activists to actually pick up and, and run with. The whole sort of idea of intersectionality, of language being literally dangerous, of being able to make the world a better place if you can control what people are allowed to say and what they're not allowed to say. It's, um, it's, it's alarming, but you can, if, we, if you understand the conception of the world that underlies this particular um, manifestation of our human tendency to try to silence and control other people and how they can think, I think that's that's the way to, to push back at it. <laughs> uh, and then, I mean, the question then obviously arises if it isn't based in, or if it's got links to this kind of more um, academic or philosophical background of the idea of the kind of changing language. How does that filter through to your average person feeling like they, you know, for example, um, an institution puts in a sort of maybe on the face of it, well-meaning policy around equality or zero tolerance to harassment or any of these things that have cropped up in the last sort of 15 years. And your average worker finds that they can't, um, they can't, they feel like they can't talk about Black Lives Matter or what's on the news or any of these things. How does that kind of filter down or has it filtered down or is this something that's happening in a bit of, in a bubble? Yeah, I think that there's been many pathways by which it has infected the outer world. First, we have got a social justice industry now. So we have um, not yet to the same extent as America, but still to a substantial one. We have 
diversity, equity and inclusion careers. We have anti-racist trainers, we have sensitivity readers, we have social justice um, advisors of various kinds. So if you've got a big company, you've got a, a university, a school, you're going to, um, quite a lot of them, are going to call on this kind of advisor. Because as we've gone into this, this particular sort of look at what social justice is, it's trading on the good name of the civil rights movements, gay pride, liberal feminism, the civil rights movements, which were inherently liberal um, plans to, to, to remove barriers, to open things up to everyone. When this has started to show diminishing returns, as we've got legal equality, what remains is to address attitudes. And an entire industry has built up around addressing, addressing attitudes, biases, ways of talking about things. And they're affecting big companies very directly with these kind of trainers. And they're infecting culture more broadly by um, people have gone into every industry um, that, that is out there, particularly media ones. We've got social justice activists online. And this is where that power is, as, as Nick was quite rightly saying, once you can get a mob going on social media, people who are going to stand against it are, are very few. It's, it's a very, almost certainly a tiny percentage of people, but they have laid stake to this moral authority and it's not being pushed back uh, strongly enough because people are afraid, because racism and homophobia and sexism are such horrible things that people don't want to be thought to be any of them. Yeah. Yes, that, no, thanks. That's really interesting. Um, I mean, Alex, can I come to you next? And, you know, the, the thing that puzzles me sort of, and that I find it hard to square is how much this is a kind of top down thing. Um, and by that, I mean that it, especially after the uh, murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement that's kicked off and the whole discussion about race, you saw, you saw this kind of um, rush of companies uh, and, you know, members of government rush to say sort of preemptively, um, I will, I, we will cancel if you do anything wrong. So put in policy places are saying that we won't tolerate any language that, for example, criticised Black Lives Matter, as Nick mentioned. But also previously, you know, around the hashtag Me Too movement, there was a lot of sort of preemptive moves by people shouting there's something that has to be done about this to censor before there's even uh, a problem. So, you know, there's one thing talking about people on social media and uh, people have been asking in the chat about what is a SJW really. But what role does uh, does the big players in this have to play? You know, government, the state, um, big companies, tech companies. Is this actually a kind of top-down censorship that we're dealing with or, or is it a bit more complicated than that? Uh, I think it's a really good question. And um, I, I would say that whilst you are right in part that businesses uh, play a role in kind of not just um, acceding to this kind of cancel culture, but sometimes leading it. Uh, I would say, on the other hand, that people enter into contracts, as they have every right to do, with their employers, which give pretty broad interpretation uh, to their employers about what is bringing their reputation into disrepute and, uh, and pretty broad restrictions on uh, their free speech generally. They, they effectively make a sacrifice in their uh, untethered right of, of free speech and their ability to appear in things like the media in return for uh, the package of salary, position, pension, and so forth that they enter into with the business. Should we look more closely at the kinds of clauses that people wind up 
signing and being uh, bullied uh, about once they want to say something and they've been in a business for a few years, perhaps bringing up kids and, and can't afford uh, to speak out as they would wish, maybe. But I do make the important point, I think, that people voluntarily enter into contracts, which can be very valuable for them, which can involve curtailment of, of their free speech. So I look less at the kind of employer-employee relationship, whilst I think it's important, and I look more broadly at the commentariat and discussion, uh, the arena of free debate, where I think you are right that big companies play a big role, but the big companies are the mainstream media organisations, which have wholeheartedly swallowed uh, the cancel culture uh, debate pretty much every broadcaster and every broadsheet has entered into it and uh, and there is really a uh, once cancelled by one cancelled by all uh, kind of phenomenon I'd say one more thing because you asked us a rhetorical question at the beginning and always one to answer a rhetorical question I thought I'd give it a go uh, Ella you asked um, is it some people say this is just a right-wing beat-up um, this is just a suggestion this is actually the right complaining about being brought to account I don't think that it's a false claim from the right that um, that this culture exists, but I do think in part it's a left-right issue. I think there has always been a tension between uh, left and right on what we now call cancel culture. I think since time immemorial, it's been a cliche that the right tends to think that the left is wrong and the left tends to think that the right is evil. And if you really think that someone is morally reprehensible, then you are likely to treat them differently to how you would treat them if you merely thought them to be woefully misguided. Uh, and I would say that this bears itself out in social media today, and I'd say it bears itself out in the way that people use Tory as an epithet and an insult and, and think simply calling someone a Tory or pointing out that they are conservative writes them out of debate entirely in a way that you really don't tend to see um, from, from right to left on the other hand. So whilst I don't think it's a, a right-wing beat-up, I do think it's a left-right issue, but not in the way that you meant. Uh, no, that's really interesting. I'll just quickly push you on that then, because as you brought it up, that I mean, the thing is, talking about it as a left-right issue, um, th the interesting thing is that historically, you could argue that it would be conservatives who would be more in favour of clamping down on uh, freedoms or censoring things. Um, sure. When I was trying to pick the music to uh, play as we were all filtering into the Zoom room tonight, I was looking at the top band um, albums, you know, and, and, and looking back at that kind of history. But then today people argue that actually it's flipped and that more often than not it's people who would call themselves left wing, whether they are actually or not, um, sure. who would be in favour of banning. So has this just kind of lost, has it lost any political alignment now or, or has it flipped? And, on top of that, you know, Donald Trump being the, one of the worst persons for censorship and calling fake news. I think that it um, still has some party political resonance. I think that you will nowadays find more defenders of free speech broadly on the right than you would find uh, on the left, in elected politics at least, I think not necessarily in, in broader politics. Uh, and the Labour Party's got itself into a pretty doctrinaire position. Uh, what, you know, and, and the amazing thing about it is it can flip from one doctrinaire position to another. You're right, you're, you're obeying the, the Corbyn uh, mantra and then things change and now you're obeying the Starmer mantra. But either way, you can fall foul of that cancel culture as many of the moderates did under Corbyn and indeed Rebecca Long-Bailey did for a retweet under, uh, under Keir Starmer. Now, none of them want, to come, want me to come to their support, but I would point out that's a kind of cancel culture in and of itself. But I, I think that you, it's, it's not just the point you were making about left and right. 
and liberalism. It's the traditional liberalism that I think is dying away. So, for example, I believe in uh, tolerance and in better race relations. But I would be for it in much the same way that Nick has outlined he was uh, for it in his own example, because it's not enough in the modern uh, political climate not to just politely disagree, or it's not enough even to not have a position. We are told that with the orthodoxy, silence is not allyship, or even silence is violence. And if you don't express full-throated enough support, you know, the person who stops clapping the first as the great leader is speaking, that person is for it. And I think that's a tremendous shame. And that really is a decline of liberalism in its real, in its traditional mainstream sense of being liberal and willing to dis reasonably disagree and, and accept that someone else has another point of view and it doesn't make them a bad person. Great, thank you, Alex. Um, Calvin, I'll come to you next. You obviously had a uh, interaction on uh, television where you were falling foul of people who were saying that you were sort of, actually in essence, kind of lying about the state of affairs in relation to the curriculum. But one of the points that uh, Helen raised about it being, you know, being called a racist or a homophobe or a sexist or someone alleging this against you is a terrible thing. It's, it really frightens people and it frightened me because it's, you deem it to be a deeply immoral position to hold. You know, the argument against cancel culture, as it were, or the argument for it to say that actually there are some things that should be censored, is this argument that what is the point of having racist or sexist or these awful views aired? Um, why wouldn't we want to live in a society where objectionable things like that are sort of uh, are raised out? The argument being that they cause offence and real harm to people. But how do you, and it's the uncomfortable truth that most of the time, I find myself anyway, when we're defending people who've been banned, the people that you're defending are often pretty distasteful individuals with pretty distasteful views. How do you square that with people who truly believe that it is a terrible and harmful thing to have those kind of views out there in the open? No, I think that's a good question because, you know, half the time when we're defending freedom of speech, we are defending things that we personally see as disagreeable or unpleasant. And I think that's, uh, to our credit, that's something we need to do because who is the judge, jury and executioner in this scenario? And, you know, who says what is objectionable and what's not and what we are allowed to talk about and what we're not allowed to discuss? And it kind of creates this almost a culture of fear in that it makes certain topics taboo that you're not allowed to talk about anymore. You know, um, growing up, people will always ask me, and this is a, this is a very old joke, but it's, it's very true to my life. People would always ask me, you know, Calvin, where are you from? And I'll say, um, well, I live in West London. They'll be like, no, but where are you from? I said, oh yeah, the East Midlands. Uh, no, but where are you from, Calvin? I'd be like, okay, Mansfield, East Midlands. You probably don't know it. And then they say, okay, so where are your parents from? I, I, yeah, they're both from Mansfield too. And what they want to know is, you know, what's your ethnicity? But they're afraid to ask that question because they'll be accused of being racist. And there's a whole taboo around the topic of race now. And part of that is because of this cancel culture and, you know, breeding this, this fear uh, by having a toxic environment. And I think it's gotten a lot worse. We've, we've gotten to the point now that if you do say something that these people deem objectionable, they'll, they'll go online and they'll, they'll be a mass bandwagon and they'll dox you. You know, I've had people this week say, ask me, where do you work, Calvin? I'm like, oh, that's, that's not really relevant to what I'm doing right now. And then they've come back on Twitter and they've, you know, stalked me to find out where I am. And I've had people in the past emailing my school, um, trying to get me sacked for, for being a conservative and a teacher at the same time, as if that's, that's a, a terrible thing. Uh, but 
to me the, the main concern is the consequences of this and, and where they go and how they approach you because it's nasty it's bullying but like everyone before me has said tonight it's because they come from this morally superior attitude that they think they're so right and that everyone else is so wrong that they don't really care how they address it i think the solution to that is you know bringing back the idea of forgiveness and, and you know maybe people are saying things that are objectionable or things that we dislike but we need to get to a point where we can forgive people and move on from it and not go for their livelihoods and not cancel them and not wipe out their career and one of the consequences that i've found of the of the sort of inevitable thing when you censor an idea is that it often goes underground and becomes more vicious than perhaps it originally might have been and I have noticed this, um, in, especially in discussions around race um, and racism, that the response, there, there's on the one hand, people say you can't say this word or you can't talk about this issue. And then the response comes back with really actually in many cases, just kind of out and out racism, people talking about not, not I'm not even talking about the sort of all lives matter, semi silly debate, but you know, uh, arguing for white lives in a kind of way that is very resonant of an old style of um, racism and is that a, is that a consequence that I think that perhaps people who are arguing for cancel culture aren't really getting that if you drive people um, underground that, that inevitably the, the, the thing that you're trying to stop which is a unequal distasteful immoral views in society mm. becomes worse is that a problem that you're worried about Absolutely. And we're seeing it. And you say it's, you said it was a silly example, but I think it's a good example. You know, Black Lives Matter, uh, they've gone so far to the extreme on one end that it's breeding extremists on the other. And that's very dangerous. And that's why we need to all come into the middle and have reasoned debates and have conversations about things that might be, you know, tough conversations to have. But unless we can have them, we do breed extremes on both ends. And, you know, people have said, the reception to this event, for example, tweets have been, oh, it's all right-wing loons moaning about being uh, held to account. Well, so what? I am a right-wing loon. Does that not mean that I'm uh, allowed an opinion? And if I express that opinion, should I not be protected from um, my family and my loved ones being attacked and you know, my career being uh, cancelled, all these things? What, what does it matter if it is a right-wing versus left-wing issue? Mm -hmm. Okay, brilliant, thanks. And then lastly, I'll come to uh, you, Claire. And I mean, the, the question I wanted to ask you, because you've been writing and talking and debating about the issue of free speech um, for a very long time, and you've written two books on it. But the, you know, there are things about cancel culture, like hounding people out of public office, trying, you know, door stopping politicians, campaigning against people and saying, here's something that you said 15 years ago, that were tactics that perhaps uh, people used in the past for benefit. So, you know, I myself have written articles pulling up stuff that John Burkow has said, and, you know, John Burkow being uh, linked to the Hang Nelson Mandela campaign. And I think that's relevant. And you could argue that that's an attempt to kind of play into cancel culture um, in a different way. But it, has it changed? Um, is it different? And is there is there anything to be said for cancel culture? Or is it kind of a toxic force in society? I think it's a toxic force in society. But you raise a problem about how you deal with people who have real toxic views. I mean, I think somebody in the in the chat made the point about, well, what do you do? You know, uh, conspiracy theorists are dangerous. And it is true that I'm seeing more and more people coming up with the most outlandish conspiracy theories about everything from COVID to vaccinations to Black Lives Matter to and linking them all up and everything else and, and so on and so forth. And my temptation is to want to just say, I'm not engaging with that. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm turning my back on you. I'm not having anything to do with you. 
and saying how ludicrous it is. And when I encounter, and I am encountering more of this, explicit racists who don't hide the fact that they're being racist, then I, um, you know, in the past, I probably would have been one of those people as a trade unionist who'd almost like say, you know, just, you know, send them to Coventry, don't let's talk to them. You know, they're kind of bunch of National Front people organising in the college or in the in the place that I worked. You know, that was my way of dealing with them. I didn't argue for them to not be platforms, but I did, I suppose, uh, make an attempt at, at distancing myself from them. So anyway, I don't know what the answer is. That's the truth. Because I don't always know how to engage. You know, I'm not, I don't feel under any obligation. And people have asked me to do this. Um, when we put on the Battle of Ideas, I don't feel that because the whole of society is trying to cancel Tommy Robinson that I think I should give him a platform or Katie Hopkins or anyone else, right? I, you know, I, I don't feel that just because somebody is being cancelled that they're somebody that I should then say, well, come on, come and speak here. But the problem we've got at the moment is that the way that this has been broadened out is that you try and delegitimize um, everybody by using these labels very promiscuously. So, and you create a climate around which being associated with an event or speaking or any individual guilt by association means that in fact everybody feels quite nervous. So, to give an example, she didn't say it herself, but Helen Pluckrose has rather pluckily been fighting off a huge number of people, well not even a huge, but a, a group of very persistent people today who've been attacking her for speaking on this panel. So they did this in a number of ways. They basically said, you shouldn't be speaking on this panel because you're giving legitimacy to lots of people who are right wing. Now, first of all, there's nothing wrong with being right wing, right? So first of all, to use that as though that is the damning statement of all time. But I don't consider myself to be right wing, but that is sufficient to say. Then you say, actually, they're right wing racists. And then, of course, now, point is, Helen fought all this off. But you can imagine that Helen might think the next time she's asked to speak at an Academy of Ideas event, God, I don't think I can go through the bloody stress of it. Do you know what I mean? If I say, yes, I'm going to get this all day. And that's what happens to people is that they, they begin to, you begin to use a, a very specific tactic of dealing with extremists by basically describing anyone you disagree with as obnoxious, toxic extremists. And that has been what has changed. It's not just a free speech issue. It's a way of making any association with a group of people you disagree with totally unacceptable. So the point about Nick was that he fought back and we, you know, and so on. And we all, he actually said, this is what I wrote in the blog. But say, for example, you're in a situation whereby you hear that the head of a charity in Manchester has been sacked by the trustees because he's a racist. And you don't know all the details of that. You haven't read the details. And then somebody says to you, well, why don't you go and talk to said racist Nick Buckley? I might think, oh, I don't know. If, is he a racist? I don't necessarily want to talk to Nick Buckley. Now, I happen to then find out that, of course, he wasn't. But it does put you in a dilemma. And so I think that's the way it operates, that you create a force field around people that means that you keep well away from them. It's just too much bother. And as Nick pointed out as well, people then um, privately, I mean, I've just been a number of attempts at cancelling me and so on but but you know people privately send you messages and say ps solidarity it's all rubbish i'm on your side but they don't say that in public and i don't blame them because they know that they will get the same wrath 
that I have had for defending me. And you get into a situation whereby you think the easiest thing to do is to be quiet or to parrot the, the orthodoxies of the day. And I suppose this is the final thing to say is, we ha what it does is it, 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 it removes the capacity for people to speak in good faith, to say what they really mean, to say, I believe this person is of good faith myself, you start to think, I won't say what I really think. And it's that self-censorship that I think is so pernicious at the moment, so damaging. Okay, thanks, Claire. I mean, the uh, people start to raise their hands, um, which is great. Please use the raise hand function. Let me throw that question out to the floor then. What's the solution? Um, how do you deal with this? Is it something that government has to mandate? Is it something that you have to just sit on Twitter and argue about? Or is this happening out in the real world? Do you, do you have to be like... Nick or um, an individual who takes a stand in your workplace and says enough is enough. Um, so I'll come to um, each person in turn in the list there. I've got the power to unmute you, so don't attempt to do it yourself, it's futile. Um, I'll do it more, we'll, but of course, ask any questions to the panel that you like, any, and also comments, it doesn't have to be a question, and I'll bring the speakers back in um, periodically. So we'll start off with uh, Kat Sumner. There's a couple of things really, um, what are the panelists think how, how big do the panelists think um the influence of money has on this you know i'm thinking particularly a thing i read only in the last couple of days about um funding of news media to print you know stories that are favorable to the organization providing the funding and that this is not declared when it's printed funding for research how much does that determine the direction that academics can actually go in in the scientific studies of all these concepts and you know also the cuts to um, the public sector which have I think resulted in um, a lot of these public functions either being taken over entirely or being encroached upon by the third sector who often have you know that quite seem to be quite poorly regulated and the distinction between lobbying and performing a charitable function as set out in the constitution doesn't seem to be policed very well. Um, and then the other final thing is really, um, I think a lot of the time we're talking past each other because we don't have a common understanding anymore of what words like racism, sexism even mean. People seem to mean very different things by them and then we're not allowed to actually talk about what our understanding of them is because no debate mm -hmm. no and we've got to have a dogma repeat it ritualistically or be cancelled <laughs> brilliant thank you thanks Kat. That's, that's the last point that's really interesting the difference between having a principle and sticking with it and also being open to different points of view uh joseph let's come to you now Hi there um i just wanted to um uh, make a quick point about being cancelled um, I, I was um, very um, forthright about the fact that I wanted to go back to school as soon as possible um, and to get the schools open and I still feel like that um, and um, I was asked to speak by a reporter um, to argue my views. Now my views were very much that if people were un unhappy about coming back to school that they could work from home um, but I wanted to go in open up and get as many children in as possible and it was a controversial view. Um, and it, I felt like it was a shame because one, we needed that discussion about what we need to do about schools. Um, so I was asked to speak by a reporter. I have a really good head. 
And I thought, I really want to pass it past her because I don't want to cause her any trouble because she was already struggling with the unions. Um, and she said to me, I really wish you don't, you wouldn't do it because I've been asked by the LA, um, you know, not to cause any problems because the LA were also trying to push to open the schools. So I do think that um, one of the things that happens is there's lots of screeching in the council culture. It feels like screeching. And then there are people who are thinking, right, well, we'll just keep pushing. We'll kind of try and work around that, not raise our head above the parapet, and we'll keep going, which is what a lot of schools did. And we got them open, and I was very happy to teach a bubble in the end. But my voice was never heard. But the voice of the people who were screeching about masks and safety and children and was heard. So um, the thing that really struck me was something that um, I think Kat just mentioned about language. Um, because I think one of the questions is what language should we use? Because I was arguing for freedom. Um, but I think, unfortunately, polit what was political language, like racism and left and right, is now being used in a moral way because we're having this argument in a cultural arena as opposed to a political arena and someone in the chat said you know the whole tina thing i said there's no alternative so it's kind of like well we accept where we are so we don't need to left and right anymore but what we do need we we need to agree our morals and it feels to me that that's where the discussion is taking place which is why the language doesn't work because we're still talking we're still using political language for what are actually moral arguments. And so right has become evil and left has become good. Okay, great. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Michael Crowley. Hi. Um, what should we do? Claire said, what should we do? I heard Douglas Murray um, in another discussion about this on uh, YouTube, and he was asked this, and he said, you know, never give an inch when you're accused, never back down and never say something um, that you don't think to be true. Never kind of incriminate yourself, which, you know, I think in principle is right, but I think it's a bit easier perhaps for someone like Douglas Murray than maybe a teacher. Um, I, think, I think what's happening is, is increasingly worrying. Um, and, you know, Nick, Buckley thankfully got thankfully got his job back. Uh, the Free Speech Union helped, but it's happening to lots of people on a very very small scale. And it is time that we had a coordinated fight. I suppose maybe this is part of it. We do, do we fight fire with fire? For instance, I don't know. Billy Bragg, for example, said on Twitter that he thought it was okay for people to be sacked if they had views that their employers, you know, didn't like. This is a man who made a single out, you know, part of the union, etc. Maybe, maybe we should pick it or leaflet outside his concerts or something like that. You know, maybe we should get out there and take it to them in the streets. I mean, when you think about the poll tax, the way that we did with the people were prepared to go to jail because of the poll tax in Britain. I knew people who did. I was not personally not prepared to do that, but I did go to court to see them off. But you know, there's the Scottish hate crime bill is a much more invidious piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> should we have, should people, people, you know, stand up and say, you know, I am just speaking the truth. In terms of what very it's all about, sorry? Very briefly, very quick last point. Look, I think the woke 
are in two categories. I think there's a cadre, and then there's people carrying along the slipstream. And the cadre, to me, reading about the history of Stalinism, is are the people who feel that they are reborn, that there is an outside world, and then, then there is the moral high ground where they live, and they are separate from the rest of society, and they're looking down and coming down very hard. And they are the minority who go for the jugular, and a lot of people just keep their heads down and go in the slipstream. And I think we, you know, it has happened to me. Small potatoes, it has happened to me, and I won't bore you with it. But it's going to be a rough ride. It won't come for all of us, but I think we need to talk about a strategy for actually taking it on in a way that people did with the poll tax or whatever decades ago. Thank you very much, Michael. I will take uh, Nancy and then we'll come back to the speakers. So, Nancy McDermott. Thanks. Um, you know, um, the thing about this is I think that uh, we are crediting uh, what's going on almost with too much rationalism because uh, I agree with Kevin and I agree with Josephine that, um, uh, and others that this is really um, a, this is a, 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 a very moral um, uh, movement that is seeking to become a new basis for the moral authority of society. Um, it's, it's, and that's why individuals don't matter because individuals are just, uh, are, are, are not the point. The point is to kind of define what is right and what is the basis on which we go forward. And so because of that, I think that we need to make a new case, a moral case for humanity. Um, it's fine to critique what they're saying, but I don't think, I think we've maybe shied away from making a moral case for universalism, for, for rationality. In other words, we kind of have to have the enlightenment all over again. Um, and, you know, and, and that means that we have to have the courage um, to stand up, as people have said, and to be brave, um, and to actually engage in a culture war, but not what the culture war is presented as. Because the, the problem with the culture war is that ultimately they're both on the same side. We have to make the case the case for humanity, um, and uh, and you know take it very seriously, and and um, and put forward a positive vision systematically. I think um, because uh, because other, otherwise, uh, you know, everything is falling. Every institution is falling. Um, you know, individuals are falling, and. Uh, and if we don't stand up now, it's going to be much, much more difficult uh, in the future. Brilliant. Thank you, Nancy. Um, that's a great point, a great challenge to bring the panel back in. Um, so, uh, Claire, I'll come to you first as I, uh, as we lost you there. Um, anything you want to pick up on from what you've heard of the speakers? But the question that I asked you was really about what do we do with this? And actually it links to something that Michael said and partly to what Nancy said, because there are suggestions from some who uh, you know argue that this is something that can be legislated for so i mentioned the policy exchange report which talks about an academic freedom bill it, does the change have to come from the top down so from you know government saying that you have to have free speech free speech or is it a hands-off approach for example getting getting rid of hate speech laws or does it have to be a kind of bottom-up organic thing it's it's very tempting to want to change the law or to kind of somehow criminalize or make illegal anti-free speech 
um, issues. And um, I think tempting though it is, it, it's probably a mistake um, because you actually will just, uh, I think we'll just end up in the law courts all the time. But I do think that there can be some more clarity given to what protections people have. So I, I, I think Alex was really right when he said, um, you know, it's perfectly legitimate for a company to say, for example, that if you were employed by them, that, you, that if you bring them into disrepute, um, that they can discipline you. I mean, that is, the, that is the deal when you work for someone. And so, for example, if your um, uh, um, behavior is such that it completely discredits where you work, I can see that they'd have a case. The problem that we've got, though, is that what is now seen to discredit a company is, is defined by someone else and then given a label. You know, so that is the problem. So if, if in fact, they say you are a racist, homophobic bigot who hates everyone, who's a Hitler supporter, and then, then they might think, oh, I don't possibly want them to be the public face of my company, right? But if, if, if what in fact is happening is that they start then introducing situations whereby, in some ways, they demand that their employees act against their conscience. And so I, I you know, I, I appreciate and Nancy and, and I heard that comment about we really need to be brave. But, you know, if you've got mandatory, um, a mandatory demand that everybody does unconscious bias training, you know, it take, it really does mean you are likely to lose your job if you're the person who says I'm not going to do it because they then label you a racist and then you end up being somebody who's bringing their company into disrepute. And we've seen this happening already. So I think it, in the end, cheats. And I much prefer partly Helen's response, which is to systematically go through some of these things and say, is it true? You know, I think you're allowed to say, is it true? Are they a racist? I mean, what is, if you disagree with mandatory uh, uh, unconscious bias training, does that mean that you are somebody who is bringing the company into dispute? Why is the company telling people that they have to do things against their conscience or to say things because the, the sort of demand, for example, that people in the arts world from their bosses put a black square around their Instagram pictures or take the knee, as it were, metaphorically, but also, you know, the silence is violence point. If you're told that you have to say what you don't believe, that seems to me to be a step too far. And in that sense, there could be some clarity in employment law and what you're defended. I mean, one of the things is I think that should be a matter for trade unions to defend you. And guess what? We then discovered that the trade unions are also in saying that their members have to have mandatory unconscious bias training, so they're unhelpful themselves. So I think we have to have a, 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 a recognition, what's that word? We have to recognize that um, even if you bring a law in, it won't stop this. In fact, it will look like a sign of weakness that you have to technically deal with it. So I think there's nothing, we have to build a movement. We have to enter into a battle of ideas and build a movement, but then take each and every case, go through them, expose what's going on. And those of us who, if you want, are in a position where we're not gonna just get sacked from saying so, be much more open and much more uh, explicit in what it is we're arguing for. The, the one thing I would say, sorry, just a final thing is, there is a real temptation as well to play tip for tat. 
Calvin was really right on this. You know, the easiest thing to do in the world is somebody tries to cancel you, is to cancel them. You said it yourself, Ella. We've all been known to say, well, I remember the time that you did this. I know that you said that. Now, I mean, it's all good fun. And one wants to expose the hypocrisy of those who call you out. And you want to say, how dare you say that about me? I know something about you. I mean, I've got lots of secrets on lots of people, right? And I have been tempted, very, very tempted to use them. And in the course of using them, I could play the victim card and say, I was the victim of this person doing this to me. And how tempting to destroy the people who are trying to denounce you. But it's gutter politics and it doesn't work because it creates an atmosphere where cancelling people becomes acceptable. So I now am much more of the opinion that I would defend the likes of Ash Sarka when she's under attack from people, even though I think something she maybe has said I've disagreed with, and she herself has tried to cancel people, or Priya Gopal, these were just two people. And two people who I recently defended against a mob who I thought were going for them, even though I really disagreed with what they'd said in, in different instances. I think that we should not allow people to be cancelled, even those people who are the greatest cancellers. In other words, we have to stand true to being tolerant of the intolerant. And that used to imply that we would be intolerant, that we would be, that we tolerate even racists and scumbags with bigoted mm -hmm. views because we believe in free speech. Now I believe that we have to be tolerant of the intolerant cancellers and defend their right to try and cancel us whilst arguing that what they're doing is intolerant, illiberal and dangerous. Okay, thanks, Claire. Calvin, um, come back on anything in the, uh, any questions or comments that Claire's raised or anyone in the panel. Um, and <laughs> although Claire got a fair shot there because she got cut off, but I'd like to, the rest of you to be brief so we can get back out. So, and just a few, few thoughts, Calvin. Okay, I'll keep it brief. Um, I really liked what Josephine was saying about, you know, the screeching because it very much, well, it's usually the case that it's a very vocal minority and, you know, there's the silent majority that don't agree with what's being preached and what's, and the people that are being cancelled. I think the fight back from that is that as tough as it might be, we need to just stick our heads above the parapets a bit more, stand up for our beliefs and soak it up. I don't think they can cancel us all. Um, we do need to defend each other, like Claire said, and if we defend people that we don't agree with, that will help the cause even more. But I think things like the, uh, the FSU, the Free Speech Union and, and this are very good because we've got people backing us on the legal stance, but also we've got an avenue to actually have these discussions. And I think, um, when Michael mentioned legislation, I think the trick there would be repealing, delegislating, get rid of the hate crime act and anything subjective like that. Um, you know, it's very dangerous what's happening in Scotland with theirs at the moment. Let's make people freer. Let's not uh, tie them up in more legislation. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. That was great. Um, Calvin, Alex, anything you want to come back on? Sure. I thought the discussion about this being a moral um, position was interesting. And I wanted to give a, make a point about why that's so important. Once you think your argument about someone being cancelled isn't just a question of them disagreeing with you, but a moral one, uh, and the arguments against you aren't just um, things you disagree with, but it, they're morally wrong. Once you think that, then defeats in things like elections and referendums are no longer decisive. They are merely setbacks which you don't have to accept. And I, we must accept peaceable failure to get our way in a democracy. Loser's consent, to coin a phrase, is a vital principle. And whilst it's not what this discussion is about, I think the refusal of the losing side to accept the result in our Brexit referendum and the two elections since has permeated and harmed politics uh, more generally in all sorts of ways. 
why should I accept losing on the discussion about whether or not to take down this statue uh, if former prime ministers and movie stars and bishops and sports presenters and everyone else I might look up to doesn't accept the results of elections and referendums. I can just do what I like anyway and I'll just go down there and throw it in the docks. But secondly, I don't accept from the, the um, very interesting conversations from our uh, guests, I don't accept the Douglas Murray line necessarily, which don't give an inch and don't apologise because it doesn't leave any possibility, uh, any room for the fact that you might have made a mistake, which is possible too. I mean, I was on the, I was briefly on the end of one of these social uh, media storms and I don't apologize for apologizing in, in, in the course of it. I was defending the prime minister against allegations of, historic allegations of, of, of groping uh, a then fellow journalist. And I was pointing out the presumption of innocence, the fact that the person I was on, on air with was just simply re re repeating, repeating, I believe her, I believe her, when the whole point of the report into Operation Midland was that you shouldn't automatically believe people. It totally undermines the presumption of innocence. And in the end, in exasperation, I went too far and I told an Alan, I used an Alan Clark joke. I said, look, the height of your case is that um, one journalist made a pass at another one. Well, how do I know my advances are, wanted, are unwanted until I've made them? And you know, the blowback that I got was quite justified actually, so I apologized. And so you've got to leave room for people to, to say sorry, and you've got to leave room for people not to be canceled, but to con concede. Now, what was wrong with that was that a couple of people involved with it then went on to say, I should never be on air at all. And that's when the cancel culture applies. Someone you know, who you've debated with many times, I've been on, on my spot on Sky for 10 years by that point. The notion that that should be a career ender was in their mind absolute, slam dunk. Let's get rid of this righty, someone else will come along and we'll take on, take on them too. I think it's, you've got to leave possibility for the room for the possibility of mistake and a concession. But on the other hand, the cancel culture goes too far when you say, not just you were wrong or I think you're an idiot or even I don't accept your apology, but you should never be on air at all. It's really interesting. Um, Helen, any thoughts from you? Yeah, I'm finding myself in agreement with everybody, almost. <laughs> and I, I think when we're talking about, um, you know, um, somebody was it, Michael was saying we, we need people who are willing to actually get themselves arrested, willing to take risks. And then Nancy was um, talking about really trying to get back to those first principles and make them um, well known and, and defensible again, which is essentially what my book tries to do. And I keep thinking we need to come at this from, we need a movement rather than a, you know, a particular um, group that has a particular goal, but people doing all of these things all at once, people modeling um, good ways in which to disagree with people, people modeling as I've, I've been agreeing quite a lot with, um, with Alex here, because if we're, to, if we're talking about trying to speak across um, the boundaries and those of us who actually do have some level of security, so, so me, for example, I am financially independent, I'm pretty uncancellable. So there are things that we can do then to, to model um, good disagreements. I think that is, is something that's, that really is, is key. Yes, saying I was wrong about that, thank you for pointing it out, saying I disagree with this person on nearly everything, but look at this good point he just made. Try, I, mean, I know this, you know, naive and idealistic, I think, but if we can push back at things on multiple levels um, in whatever way we, we can without, you know, vulnerable people who need their jobs to feed their families actually risking losing their jobs, I'm, um, I'm in favour of that. And I'm, I'm with 
with Claire on being quite wary of legalizing um, anything, you know, in universities in trying to mandate um, free speech or, you know, as some people have argued, defunding um, certain um, things. I think this needs to happen organically. I think we need to beat the ideas. I think this would be um, essentially hypocritical and counterproductive if we were to try to shut down these bad ideas by uh, legal means. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. Yeah, I was reminded of that just the, after the Brexit referendum, there was a bizarre happening where an MP sent round, probably in a, he claimed it for research, but probably in a moment of frustration, sent round a letter to universities demanding that they state who their professors were who were studying, teaching European affairs in a kind of a reverse <laughs> witch hunt because all the, um, uh, many of the university uh, professors and academics were remain and you kind of as someone who was you know wanted a, a more balanced discussion this you had your heads in your hands because you thought no this is just not the way to do it you don't as pleasures do tit for tat and just because you think it's biased one way try and swing it by mm. another way uh nick finally your thoughts and i'm going to come back out to the floor so please raise your hands everyone else for me i think we need to look at what we're trying to achieve and i think some of the terms like culture war we need to fight back i understand all that and it's perfectly acceptable but if you put yourself in the position of the other person who thinks they're morally right and morally superior and they they feel that you're fighting back this is a war then they will fight to the death and what we need to do is we need to we need to challenge them with with love and so people are talking about when someone we disagree with is trying to, is trying to be cancelled we need to be on their side we need to show these individuals that we're not evil that we're not nazis and it's going to take some time but I think that's how we tackle the vast majority who are decent people, who may be trying to cancel people who've been caught up in the slipstream of all this. But from 20 years of experience, we're all decent people and they've just been, we've all can get caught up in these things. But what I would like to see is some leadership from the very top. I'd like to see some leadership from national government. Where, you know, there's been nothing from Boris Johnson. We had Priti Patel in the Commons the other day using identity politics to score a point. And it's very tempting to do that, but I think we need we need national leadership as well as everybody else doing their bit. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Nick. That's great. Um, so I'm going to come back out to the floor. And um, right, so we, based on all the points that have been made so far, we agree that this is a bad thing. We agree that something needs to be done. Um, and maybe we can start to have a little bit of debate about how we, how one gets involved in that fight back, as it were. And some, what, I think it was Ashley Frawley has raised in the comments an interesting point that I want to throw out to everyone, which is, you know, in many ways, uh, the, the discussion around cancel culture is about, as you know, in relation to Claire's book, is about offence and people finding things offensive. And it's all very personal and it's linked into that, the political as the personalized political trend of identity politics more broadly. But is, I mean, part of the problem perhaps, as Ashley asks, is has material politics, you know, the kind of stuff that Michael Crowley was talking about in relation to the poll tax, the sort of the material things that happen in people's lives, that the importance around that has sort of dissipated. So rather than talking about immigration policy, we're talking about words that people use to describe immigration, rather than talking about, uh, police uh, brutality we're talking about what kind of words you should call a policeman a policewoman so it's all this stuff that's kind of become 
you know, in many ways, really quite shallow and surface level. But actually, most people now, or many people that I talk to, experience politics through this kind of very personal lens. You don't have to be a sort of nutty SJW stereotype to feel it that way. Lots of people now are sort of internalizing politics and, and, and thinking about their own individual response to it. So how do you tackle that? Does it, do we have to have a return to some kind of material basis for politics? How do you deal with that trend, long-standing trend of the personal is political, which seems to underpin this idea of offence culture, cancel culture, whatever you want to call it. Um, but as that was a kind of a historical question, I'm going to throw it back to um, Kevin Yule, who is uh, back online. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I was just going to say that in order to understand this, you can look at a, a sort of historical analogy. And it's this kind of phrase, white silence is violence. It's very, very interesting because that's like, uh, you must declare your allegiance to this idea. It's a, it's a, it reminds me of the, of the 17th century, but also, uh, for instance, the 1890s, when there was a great religious crisis. And uh, it's, it's very much, you're ordered to declare your religious faith in this idea. And it is a faith because nobody's actually proving it. And I think that's precisely its weakness. I think what we can do is we can, uh, you know, this the whole essence of, of why people are so intolerant and why it takes on this quasi-religious tone is that it's born of insecurity. They, they don't have a sense of legitimacy underneath. They don't have a sort of sense, a, a strong sense of, of what they're trying to argue. So I think it's incredibly important to challenge it. And as a historian, when you look back, you look at various points in history where a tiny few people argued against the majority and they were very, very effective because it, as it happens, uh, history was on their side, so to speak. So I would urge people to be brave, be polite, as Claire said, you know, it, there's no point in, in getting involved in a, a personal slanging match, uh, but stand up and, and be counted. Uh, there's no need to apologize and, and uh, insist on what you believe. That's the only uh, suggestion that I think will will work against this. Okay, thank you, Kevin. Uh, we'll go over to Jan McBarish now. Thanks, Ella. Um, I don't think we should use the term moral to describe what's going on here because I think it's um, immoral. <laughs> and um, I think it's, uh, you know, to, to seek to destroy individuals rather than to engage in political discussion or social conversation is immoral. And I think it takes us, it rolls us back a very long way uh, from some really important developments which separated the individual from their ideas. The individual is just a fundamental being from the ideas that you might hold and which might change and develop. That's the whole point is that, you know, your ideas need to be able to develop. And that was the enlightenment idea of, a, of the individual, which is that they had a kind of fundamental presence as a person, um, which gave them certain status, but then their ideas were something that were held slightly beyond them. And, um, and that were held in common with us, actually, even if we disagree, those ideas, exist out there in society as our ideas even if we're, we're contesting them and i think that we somehow we really do need to uh really have a very dignified response to this i think um because it is it's 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 such a dirty fight that's going on that i think you know dignity is the way to do it and i think it's all it is going to be about a lot of exemplary behavior and especially when you see this as something where we need to take the arguments to younger people who are, have never heard 
the kind of arguments for the separation of the personal and political, for example, for the separate sphere of politics, where it doesn't just permeate every single interaction, every sphere of life. So you can pick up your child from the nursery and not despise a fellow parent for the t-shirt they're wearing or, you know, or in your workplace, it's not continually, um, you're not trying to solve every social problem in every you know, point of your life. So somehow we need to make those, put those boundaries back in place. But I think we can only do that if we, we do actually um, develop a sort of exemplary movement in some ways that, that can restore some of that dignity that did used to exist in, in public life. And I think there's a great appeal for that. I mean, I'm, I worked in universities for 20 years and I've met very few of these woke people you know uber woke people they don't there's a very very small number of them and what there is is very large numbers of people that are very quiet mm. um and who really don't want to get their fingers burnt and as people have described already so there's no we're not there's no point arguing trying to come up with ways of, of arguing or behaving that that somehow will convince the lunatics who are bent on destruction. We have to be able to persuade everybody else who's already, who've already got reservations about the way things are going. And I think there's a lot of ground that can be won on that. Great, thank you, Jan. And now over to Jagdish. Yeah, hi. Um, just a, a lot of people have said a lot of things I was gonna say, but I think I just said briefly that um, I think in a lot of these things start off with a minority of people who have got access to the media or who live online, who live all their lives online and they believe that whatever, they take the lead by what's going on online and they're just literally just talking to each other online. But it's, it's, it's beginning to kind of gather, it gathers a little bit of steam and it, but it starts to affect people, I think, is when you know, it starts to impact on people's jobs, their housing or the membership of an organization and so on. And in a lot of those situations, I think you have to blame the employer, you have to blame the landlord, or you blame the, the people who are denying them, whatever that is, because that is an abuse of power. But as it happens, those people are either also living online, or as Claire was saying, is that they feel under pressure that if they, to kind of keep a clean image and stop other people from pointing a finger at them, that it's better if they just get rid of uh, any kind of risk uh, and, and then have a, get one of these consultants in to come and bore people to death with some kind of a training course on, on how, how to be politically correct and how to say very bland things which don't mean anything. I mean, one of the, the, the stark, uh, and people may disagree with me, but, you know, uh, and I hope some people, well, may be offended by this, but I mean, the worst case was this, the BBC this week, which, uh, you know, uh, they, they had to apologize about the use of the, of the word. Um, and I thought it was just so, I, I just, I felt offended by the fact that the guy had to apologize and they had lessons to learn from it. And it's one of the oldest kind of cons there. If a white person says the word that person is a racist. But if a black rap artist says the word hundred times in, in, you know, and publicly and in songs and so on, uh, you know, that's kind of okay. And so we get by, we get around that by white people, I would say the N word. Now there's nobody who's, you know, got a brain who doesn't understand the N word means with just saying n-word so it's got so ridiculous that i think people are losing touch with what is the essence of behind all of that what is it you know that is offensive about it and it can't be that one thing is offensive if one person says it but if somebody else says it then it's perfectly okay um mm -hmm. lastly uh, is is the other example is around i mean i've 
a long campaigner for the rights of Palestinians and so on. And we used to kind of criticize the you know, Israeli government and their actions for decades. Now it is, you have to be incredibly careful because it's very easy to be labeled as anti-Semitic because you know, of the amount of attention that is raised by people who you know, are you know, basically re realize that they can have some power in trying to silence you by trying to equate uh, being against uh, the state of uh, Israel or the government of Israel mm -hmm. and their actions with anti-Semitism. So yeah, so I think it, it's, you know, we really got to be quite careful how, you know, uh, a lot of the people who are a minority who live online, mm -hmm. but who are able to dominate because of the, either the power they have to be able to dominate other people's consciousness. Um, but anyway, so that's just what I wanted to say. Carlton Brick, next. Oh, hi, thank you very much. Um, just to follow on from what Jan was saying, because uh, I very much agree with Jan's point that I've, this isn't a moral movement, a cap, cancel culture it, it kind of is not predicated on a, a moral idea. In fact, that, that's the problem with it really. It's, it's lack of a moral uh, core in the sense that I think it was Nick that said, these people will fight for the death. Well, they don't, and that, that's the problem, because uh, they don't hold the ideas that they're holding to with any conviction whatsoever. And that's the real issue, I think, here, is that cancel culture is far more than an attack on free speech. It's far more than censorship. In a sense, what it's really attack on is the notion of meaning and how, uh, and how disagreements over meaning are actually quite key and fundamental to the, the, the moral worlds that we live in, the, the ability to make decisions from right or wrong. So I don't see cancel culture as a kind of moral thing at all. And that's the problem with it. It's, 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 it's contentless in the sense of it's kind of uh, what it stands for, because it stands for nothing. And that's the issue really. And I suppose what our task is, is to uh, um, make the case for disagreement, that it's actually only through disagreement, only through challenging ideas that that society uh, can move forward, that people can become more tolerant, that people can change their uh, views on the world. Uh, the cancel culture just fixes society in a static place. It reduces it to uh, kind of technical issues uh, and um, it, it robs it of, of, its, of its human and moral components. Great, thank you, Carlton. Um, at this point, I think I should probably state that we are we are going to overrun past eight thirty. But panelists, I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to keep running for another ten minutes in with on the floor, and then come back to you at um, eight thirty. And then, if you have to go, I understand because we said this was only going to be an hour and a half. But there's lots of people who want to speak, so I'm going to keep running until nine. So if you've got your hands up, don't worry, I'm going to come to you. So let's keep going. Uh, Dennis Hayes, you're up next. Hi, I think. Um... You have to understand cancel culture as the um, apogee of therapeutic culture in wider society and in universities in particular, because it's that moment where emotions have triumphed over everything else. So if people get offended and really emotionally offended on, because they see themselves as victims or on behalf of other victims, they will attack you, you know, because you are an, either a victimizer or somebody who's beneath contempt. And they do have a moral authority. It's not a political or any sort of traditional authority. It's a moral authority based on emotions. And people often misunderstand this. When people talk about snowflakes and people presenting themselves as weak and wonder why they then do these 
authoritarian things, it's because it gives you power, it puts you beyond criticism. And that's the new moral authority they have, and it's an authority of emotions. And that's why it's much more difficult to deal with, because everybody is silent, not because they're afraid, they don't accept that. They're silent because they don't want to offend anybody. That's the real mo motive about this. You don't want to offend anybody emotionally. And I think that makes things very difficult. And AFAF, and, and we've been involved in lots of these um, cases where people have been cancelled and cancel culture comes very quickly now. The real difference is historically, you may have taken time to build up a, a case against somebody and asked to be sacked, but you put one Facebook post up and you're, you're charged with gross misconduct. That's the sort of thing that happens. But there are ways forward and, you know, I think everybody's been talking about winning arguments and building new policies and there are easy ways of doing it. And one thing that we've taken up is the idea that if you're going to train somebody in unconscious bias, don't just have some training that's brought in, make sure it's done through debate and discussion. And little moves like that can win people over to at least not come into your side, but to start discussing it. Because you've got to win the argument to discuss things before you can start winning an argument for truth. I think that's the steps forward you should make. There should be small ones. And I think people will see there's a lot of logic in that. So the small steps forward like that are much more likely to convince people than just making glib statements about reintroducing universalism. Okay, thank you, uh, Dennis. We should say that, that the picture behind Dennis is Academics for Academic Freedom, which is an organisation um, he runs and you can search them and find out more about them. They do a lot. Um, their own, Dennis runs the East Midlands Salon, which has debates on um, freedom of speech and issues like that often. Uh, right, next up is um, Usha Sundaram. Hi, thank you. Um, in the chat, I, uh, I'll try and be quick. In the chat message, I made the point that um, we've talked about postmodernism, um, so hyperrealism and fragmentation and an obsession with identity is, the, is one of the characteristics of postmodernism. So I don't think it's actually surprising that we're seeing about a couple of generations of people who are um, focused exclusively on identity and uh, to the exclusion of everything else. But I wanted to raise the um, just a point, just a thought, whether we're also seeing a rise in council culture as a natural outcome of um, political correctness and uh, an expansion of the state and the public sector within the last 20, 30 years or so. Um, I think what we've seen is a gradual, steady um, expansion uh, and entrenchment and even encroachment of the state, which is the establishment, government, local authorities, police, academia, schools, educational establishments, and even charities to some extent, um, uh, and their growing influence on every aspect of our life. And definitely equality, diversity is a big part of, um, you know, the, the, this, this public sector establishment. Um, and I genuinely think we're not talking about a moral culture, but I think that this industry, ultimately, this is an industry and it creates its own supply and demand. And I genuinely think that for a lot of people, even for cynical reasons, they see themselves in, in an almost paternalistic way as being the um, arbiter or the moral compass of morals in, in, in public life. And it has sort of um, resulted in two things, two parallel consequences, I think. One is that the public sector has become the key driver of this sort of political correctness, equality, diversity culture, which has then given rise to this council culture, which is now starting to influence the public sector. And when it is, it's big companies, big brands that can afford to um, 
given to cancel culture, like drop a brand or change the packaging, which they can afford to do, then it doesn't affect. But when it comes for the, um, you know, the, the plumber or the gas fitter or the electrician or the self-employed hairdresser, and then it becomes problematic because it starts to affect everybody. But then the second consequence is the expansion of council culture within the public sector itself. Uh, you know, the, the, well, we've talked quite a lot about universities. I mean, I, I work in a university, but I've always worked in a business school. And um, we get at both battles because in the business school, we contribute the maximum money to the university, but we're also always seen as a bit of a social pariahs, you know, we are sort of the dirty capitalists, but we do have a very small but very vocal minority um, that, that that sort of expands this council culture. So it's not just people who supposedly stand up for against racism or bigotry. Now this council culture is spreading to all different aspects which are seen as incontestable. So you have cancel culture that comes for people who try to have um, a reasonable rational debate about things like climate alarmism or Brexit or addiction or homelessness or poverty. It, it becomes absolutely impossible to have a reasoned argument or even a discussion about these things because this is simply not on and you're labeled for this and you see this cancel culture spreading from perhaps the humanities and the arts where a lot of people are usually quite vocal into areas like business schools and medical schools and engineering and then it gives rise to having these um shutdowns of debate you know you're not supposed to you you, you are supposed to accept that you are inherently racist you are supposed to accept that your curriculum is colonial you are, you are supposed to accept that Brexit is a bad thing for you and if you try and have a, 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 a rational debate or even pr provide an opposing viewpoint then the council culture comes for you and yeah. I think that very finely with the with the expansion of the state I think okay thank you sorry I've got a lot of hat great point you're making some of the razor sharp points there but I, I've got to get through people right so uh, Daria Amalenko is up next Thanks so much, I'll, I'll be brief uh, as well. I just want to say that, uh, coming back to the point that Jan made, uh, it's becoming very clear to me in my role as student union president uh, that actually it isn't the minority, it's the majority of people who don't say anything. And I put it to you that most students don't want to go into a job market where they can be cancelled and where they can lose their jobs very easily simply for having an opinion and for posting about it. Uh, so I do think that we can create uh, positive trends and movements and free speech societies and we can uh, oppose cancel culture in our own little ways uh, and thank you so much for organizing this oh well thank you very much that's really interesting um point right and next i'll come up to paul sapper great thanks Ella. so i think your last question if i understand it correctly of um how do we combat this idea that the personal is the political is linked to alex's point that the people who are in proponents of cancel culture um kind of have this worldview that the things they believe are so right that anyone who disagrees with them is not only wrong but evil so the, the the question is how do we change those people's minds and having been university i can say that like the amount of people who speak out against that worldview is is very very small it's very rare for someone to kind of speak out against someone being cancelled for for any reason um and so i think we're then back to your initial question of is legislation a feasible answer to this um and i don't think we should be afraid of legislation because as nick said i think we do need some like leadership from the top and i think if there are clear-cut laws in favor of free speech in universities institutions will often just act in self-interest to guarantee them 
But I do also agree with Claire that to have a legislative answer without a, a cultural one is futile because um, eventually a lot of people in university who, who hold this worldview of cancel culture will kind of get into positions of power in politics or journalism. And if they disagree with the laws in place, they will just repeal them. So I, I think the, the answer has to be simultaneously a cultural one and a legislative one. Um, okay. And I think that the, the cultural answer, I agree with what Dario just said lastly as well, which is that like students in universities who, who, who don't agree with cancel culture can do their, their bit in their own personal spheres to set up societies and, and whatnot to kind of like show that there is an opposite side of the argument, which, which, isn't, which isn't reprehensible. So kind of being, having integrity, treating others with respect, um, but also like speaking uh, your, 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 your opinions in a, in a clear manner. And also intel intelligent, compassionate people like going into universities and showing that there is another side to the argument. Great, thanks, thanks, Paul. That's brilliant. Right, I'm going to whip through people now, and and because we've only got a handful of um, of questions left, and then I'll come back to the panel for final thoughts. The so panel, hang in there. I'll come back to you in five minutes or so. And well, let's go whip through. Um, Dad Khan, what do you have to say? Hi, yeah. My issue with cancel culture is it shuts down debate. It shuts down argument. People who have views on the left and people who have views on the right tend to be people who want the best for the society in general, but they don't listen, they don't disagree, they just view that anyone who's on the right is evil, disgusting and rude. Anyone who's on the left is a tax and spend socialist. And I think if people can, you know, see the best sides on both sides, you know, I'm Labour, I'm centre-left, but I do see a lot of benefits to conservative policies, I see a lot of benefits to being fiscally prudent. And I think if people can stop shutting down debates and focus on winning them through arguments, through points, rather, through ideas, rather than just saying, you know, all my views are right. Well, with all due respect, if all the left views were right, they'd be in government right now. Well, the fact is they're not in government right now because the people don't agree. So you have to reach out to the people who disagree with your views. And just um, the point about liberals being uh, council culture, they need to stop saying that because liberalism means freedom. It means the ability to say, do, and say, communicate what you believe. And even if it is, fundamentally what you uh, you disagree with somebody that doesn't mean you shouldn't have an opinion that you know what come out of what jan says about people in university who don't speak and don't have a view well they should quite frankly dis uh, disagree with the wokes and the SUWs, not because they think they're bad people because they have a view that's opposite to theirs and if we can encourage a society where people can disagree people can articulate that argument in a civil manner then you'll have a more cohesive society where cancel culture isn't required and that's the point of legislation you know right. I'm, I'm just this is my final point then i'll you know i'll shut up but you know it's not the role for the state to control people's minds it is the role of people to control people's minds people know what they think and it is not the role of governments uh, to control what they think government is there to help those in need not to say what people can and can't do right thank you and I'm very glad you made that last point because it was cracking. So thank you, Dad. Uh, Phil Harrison now. Thanks, Ella. Um, the, a few people have made the point that cancel culture is not a new thing and um, has been around, or the motivation has been around for a very long time, thousands of years perhaps. What is a new thing is Twitter. Uh, and it feels like when we talk about cancel culture in the contemporary moment, we have to remember we're mostly talking about Twitter. 
if we wanted to, to stop cancel culture tomorrow, if we took Twitter down, it would probably work because most of the structure and the mechanism by which people are being canceled, it's often not about what people say, it's about what people tweet. Um, I don't have a solution to this other than that I don't think we can take on cancel culture through this medium. I don't, I think that the medium itself debases argument and conversation to such a degree that it's not possible to do, as Dow just said, to disagree respectfully and have constructive conversations. So I, I don't know how to get off Twitter. I don't know what you can do about that, but I don't think, I think structurally the, the medium is the message here. And if we want to be serious about taking on cancel culture, I don't think we can do it without taking on the, the, the medium by which we communicate. Okay. Great, thanks Phil. Uh, now we'll have Dennis. Yeah, um, I must admit I thoroughly disagree with that last point. Um, I think um, cancel culture um, is not reliant on Twitter uh, and without it you know, would cease to exist. I think it's much more endemic in our political culture. I think it's true obviously that you know, um, any political and cultural phenomena does not have one source, but one source that's been neglected in this argument, I would argue is class because one of the biggest examples of cancel culture was the attempt to cancel the democratic election of 2016. 17.4 million people's vote for a democratic process that they wanted to control. That's the biggest example you ever see. And all of the arguments that, you know, float around Twitter and all the rest of it, of racists and fascists and homophobes and deplorables, and you can carry on, you all know the list that has been applied and equally in America to the people who voted for Trump. These are the people that are significant in the whole question of cancel culture, because that's where the liberal left, as they now are, feel that you have to control society by controlling those people, finding ways through language or through whatever to make sure we can sort of put the chains on those people. Uh, and that's the most significant aspect for me. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Dennis. Uh, now we'll have Darius Hutchinson, then Liz Barber, and then panel. I'm coming back to you in the order that we kicked off with. Uh, so, Darius. Hello. Um, I just listened to it and it all looks very interesting. But I kind of disagree with what Claire Fox said respectfully earlier about uh, not th this woman that was talking about white people, I forget what her name was on Twitter, that um, these people are so prevalent in the university system and education system from the Frankfurt School, when they infiltrated it, that it's almost impossible when you disagree with them to sort of respectfully do it and then everyone's happy because they'll mark you down or they'll find a way to get rid of you. We need to find a way to replace or get rid of them so that we have a fair, a more fair balance and they don't dominate these, because the fact that they dominate these infrastructures so heavily it's impossible to put any argument forward because they can just block it. If we have a way to replace them and with people like Claire Fox, Dan Hannon, uh, people like that, to have that respect free of speech, then we might have a better chance of opposing it. Thank you for your points. Um, and now finally, Liz Barber. Um, okay, so I've been listening to all of this and uh, as one or two of you, probably know. Um, I'm something of an interloper amongst you illustrious crew, having five O-levels to my name. And it's very interesting to me because I feel as though I kind of occupy two completely different worlds. There's your reality, and I know that it is, 
and there's where I actually live, which seems to have nothing at all to do with what we're talking about here. In fact, I, I, I could almost say that for the majority of people that I deal with and speak to and, and, and all the rest of it, they wouldn't necessarily know what cancel culture is or, or even have heard of work. They would know it if they saw it. But it's as though what's going on above a certain level hasn't and doesn't permeate below that level. And um, the, the, sorry, I, I forget the name, but the guy that was speaking last but one and talking about Brexit and the fact that regardless of whatever was said about them, the working class people voted to leave the EU and that all of the insults and all of the rest of it and, and how they were meant to think and meant to behave and all the rest of it just didn't permeate. It's not where they are. And I, I don't know now whether it's, it's the fact that we've got so many more young people going to university. Is this what's changed it? Was that the grand plan all along, potentially? Um, but when I was my daughter's age, it was, it was about, you know, you were either Labour or Conservative, it was very much, you know, Margaret Thatcher or, or Kenneck or whoever, whereas now it's more of a moral argument. Essentially, we, I, I'm, I'm sort of still as, as opposed to her views as my, as, as my parents were to mine at that point in time in some regard. Mm. It's just the argument that's changed. Yeah. So I, I don't know if... if what's happening at your level it, I know that it's real but is it as is it as desperate and widespread as you all think it is if you understand what I mean I'm asking you do indeed Liz thanks that's a great point of how whether or not this is something that happens uh primarily among commentators and on social media which often these rounds do tend to begin but whether it's having a wider uh, effect on uh, your average person on the street who doesn't like me spend a lot of time wasting time. Right, we're going to hear from the um, panel now. Who've been patiently waiting. Just some brief points, guys. You can't comment on all of those. We've had a really, it's been a really amazing chat. And I'll just say before we bring you in, plug one last time. If you want to make a donation to the Academy of Ideas, head to www.academyofideas.org.uk/donate. Um, and bonus a few quid. It helps us put on these debates and will help us in the future. Um, so now, Nick, I'm going to come back to you. Anything you want to comment on, just a minute or two, really, you've got. Yeah, I think my final point really is we, we need, if we're going to tackle this, we need to do it through emotion um, and morality. Facts don't work. Um, so we, we, need to work, we need to work a way that will hit someone else's emotion for them to understand where we're coming from and to understand that this isn't going to help anybody. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for that. Um, right, Helen, your final thoughts. Yeah, I, I wanted to pick up on um, Paul's um, thought when he's saying we need both a cultural and a legislative um, approach. And I do agree with that to, um, to quite an extent. I think on a sort of urgent level we need to expand the idea of secularism to social critical social justice ideas we need to have something in place so they cannot actually be imposed upon other people while we're actually addressing this in the in the um, in the marketplace of ideas but i also wanted to um, disagree quite strongly with jagdish and um agree with um dennis i dennis 
no, uh, whoever it was who was uh, from the Af uh, um, academics against um, for academic freedom. Yes, that gentleman. I think it, the idea that um, we need to start normalising using the worst um, racial slurs is is not a very good one at all. I think if we're going to try to actually meet people halfway, we haven't had a lot of talk about that yet. Um, Nick was just referring to it, but I think at some point culture does actually exist, bias does actually exist, people do have, um, are influenced by culture into having certain assumptions. We don't need to deny this and try to uh, make everybody less sensitive to everything all the time. We can meet halfway there and that I think was um, was what uh, Dennis was it was was saying when he was saying yes let's have implicit bias but let's not have this kind of pseudo-scientific one um, ideological um, explanation for everything uh, type of implicit bias. Let's actually have conversations, let's talk about things in that liberal exchange of views ways. So um, yeah, I shall wrap up there. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you Helen for that. Uh, right now we'll move on to Alex to your final comments. Thank you very much. Um, we've been asked what we can do to address this and I think we must um, keep making the point that something can simultaneously stand for more than one thing. Uh, contradictions can coexist. A musician can ha have been a rat bag tax dodger, which we decry of course, uh, but still be a sublime composer, which we can nevertheless cherish. Um, defacing Churchill statue in inevitably causes upset uh, in society because for many people he personifies the never surrender spirit that defeated the Nazis. Certainly some of the views that he expressed are unacceptable to many or most today, but it doesn't take away from what the man achieved. Scouring our country to find things to be offended by, whether it be in history or in uh, contemporary uh, society, is daft. But it's especially daft when we try to apply it to the past, because it fails to appreciate that people in history acted with the knowledge that they had at the time and in the circumstances of their time. This used to be a truism. This used to be mainstream liberal perspective. Now it's apparently controversial. The task looking back is to try to do so with understanding, not least because we hope to uh, live in a time to come, and we hope to be viewed in a time to come by people who will seek in turn to understand us. Those who follow us, we hope, will be kind and thoughtful and understanding of us too. But for the truly woke, uh, only today is tolerant, and everyone who lived before this glorious year zero is a bigot. Well, we must uh, reject that, if only on uh, the basis that it will serve us pretty ill in the future too. Brilliant. Thank you, Alex. Over to you, Calvin. Brilliant. I'll come back on just a couple of brief points. Uh, Jan mentioned a long time ago, if I remember, that uh, it wasn't a moral issue, it was an immoral issue. And I think she's right on that because I think as a nation we've lost our moral compass. And this might be controversial, but I think, you know, obviously we used to be a Christian nation. That used to be where we got our morals from, absolutely. And as we've secularised, we've looked at different places. And I think if you look at things like Extinction Rebellion, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, they're becoming almost cultish, as in they've got their own rituals, they've got their own vestments, they've got their own moral codes, and it's very much you're with us or against us, and that's where the good versus evil comes from, because you're either a good person with them, or you're an evil person against them. Uh, and that's why, you know, if you make a mistake in your past and you tweet something or you've, you've said something on Facebook years ago, and they'll hold you to account for it, but they won't forgive you for it, because that's not in their moral handbook. 
And uh, just to briefly come back on what Jagdish uh, said, uh, dropping the M-bomb several times, Jagdish. Um, you know, I think there is a bit of hypocrisy there with the BBC in that they'll play all of their songs on one extra have the M-word in them. Uh, and then, you know, they capitulated here with the apology for using it in a statement when the victims of, and the family all said they wanted the word in there to make clear what was said. But that is very different to what Jagdish did this evening in that, you know, using the word once so we know what word you're talking about is acceptable. But then if you go on to repeatedly use that word, it, there's, a, there's a fine line there between, you know, purposefully trying to offend or me taking offence from you using it. You know, if you use it once, I might, that's my choice whether to be offended or not. But if you're using that word repeatedly after we already know what you're talking about, out, then you know the, the onus is rather than the, the uh, victim I think in that case so I think yeah like uh, Helen was saying we have to be very careful and there is a middle ground there and we'll try not to be purposefully offending people but at the same time letting people know that it's acceptable it's okay to be offended and that's not the end of the world and we don't need to cancel people because of it. Thank you Calvin for that. Uh, Claire your final thoughts. Um, the, yeah so uh, first of all I really agreed with one thing that Nick said earlier about the disappointing aspect of leadership, political leadership, not commenting on these things. That would really help. I don't think it would substitute for building grassroots movements, but there is something so irritating about the fact that those people who have got serious uh, power in society have just kept dumb on this because it's too difficult to enter into it. I wanted to say something then about labeling as well. I mean, um, uh, I don't want to play the victim, but it really irritates me when people say, oh, you know, you're just a commie or you're just a Marxist or you go along with this. Or people make assumptions based on whatever label they give you and how unhelpful that kind of tribal thing is. So I actually have got to the point now where the kind of left right thing just doesn't work for me. I don't care what people call me. I just think, say, can't we just listen to what people are saying and go along with that? One of the things that we haven't discussed tonight, although I think Alex got uh, close to it when he explained about saying sorry when he was sorry for something um is it is how do we view a society where actually if somebody changes their mind say say you persuade someone that that actually their racist bigotry is wrong and they change their mind they can actually never be reformed because somebody's going to find the old tweet the old opinion that they had you can never actually persuade anyone there's no point because if we only work through labels and we only see people through uh, something that they said once, then it seems to me that we, politics is over and dead. And then uh, I suppose my, my main point is uh, to finish with is on class. I think there is a class element, but, it, but I think it's more that uh, for, for the majority of ordinary people in this country, they don't know the linguistic rules or the rules of woke society. And often when they're fighting for material gain or something that they're arguing about, they can so easily break the codes that are set up and um, that we're not allowed to break anymore. And it seems to me then when that happens that they are often the people who are most in jeopardy from being cancelled in, in, in lots of ways. But I do understand one thing and I'm sympathetic to this. I'm sympathetic to those people who are pro-cancel culture who say lots of powerful people have an entitlement. They think they can say things and get away with it without being held to account. And now the little people should have a voice. And I tend to agree with them. It's just that often the people who are saying that are actually the new elites presenting themselves as the victims. They are actually the ones with the power these days. They are the ones who have the power to destroy people's livelihoods and lives. But I do have some sympathy with that idea that 
there should be more people allowed to speak on these issues, not less. And, you know, I don't want JK Rowling to be the only person who's given a platform. I do want there to be more important people. I, I do want more credit to be given to ordinary people who don't usually uh, have a voice. Um, when, when Liz says um, that uh, maybe ordinary people don't know what's going on here, the one, I, I disagree with her on that completely, the one credit I'll give to lockdown is that because we've all been locked down, the BLM movement thing sprang into life. Now everybody and anybody is much more aware of this cancel culture issue. It is much more of a popular con conversation. It's cut through. And the positive thing about that is that gives us an opportunity to have this discussion and this dis debate because it was confined to a small group of people who were like Helen and I that go on about what was happening at university. People say, what's that got to do with me? Now everybody knows that this is a massively important political issue. And as Nick says, I hope the politicians notice that as well. But the rest of us should take advantage of that wider cut through to ensure that we have a broader public debate. Brilliant. Thank you, Claire. Thank you to all our speakers, Claire, Alex, Calvin, Helen and Nick for joining us tonight. I'm going to unmute you all and we can uh, online clap them for their contributions. Thank you very much. Uh, and I've muted you all again then. So yes, thank you very much. I mean, uh, look, I thought that it was going to be, we anticipated that this was going to be something of a fiery debate because tensions are so high around cancel culture, but that was really um, we, I think we dug down into some of the sort of deeper points about why this is happening and what we can do about it. For me anyway, um, God help me if I'm, uh, you know, arguing for defending the free speech of um, loud mouths who often I disagree with uh, in years to come. I'll still do it, but I hope that's not where this debate goes, because actually the whole important thing about the reason why cancel culture is so toxic, for me anyway, is that it stops people who want to make real change and talk about politics with a capital P. Because if you're forever rowing over whether things are offensive and whether what you can say and what you can't say, then you're not dealing with the big issues. And I, you know, I meant that if you're forever arguing about what word you can use to describe migrants, then you're never you actually talking about the real issue of immigration or and take any issue. Um, like that. And so that, for, for me anyway, fighting against cancel culture and fighting freedom of speech has to be the starting block. And then from there, you can get on with the real issue of the day, which is, you know, proper politics rather than scrapping on Twitter. So thank you to the Academy of Ideas for putting on um, this debate. And if you'd like to uh, help support us uh, in our future work, we've got forums, we've got salons, we've got podcasts, um, we've got a whole range of things that are open to you but we need your support so please go to www.academyofideas.org.uk forward slash um, donate and uh, there you can choose to do it one off or become a, a associate give a standing order whatever I know there's lots of we know that there's in these crazy times lots of people who can't afford to do that and that's why these online events are free and we'll have them accessible and they're recorded and up afterwards but if you can any every little help so thank you very much everyone for a really enjoyable evening i don't know about the rest of you but i'm absolutely covered in sweat thank you for joining me for a very hot summer evening uh, we'll be back again we're back later on in august with a debate on u.s elections and what the hell is going on there in the meantime check out our website and uh, i'm going to open the floor up now for people to um chat informally but thank you to our speakers and good night everyone <laughs>